Hi, this is Neha and you're listening to the Bold Enough Podcast. Join me in this authentic journey engaging in uncomfortable but real conversation with wonderful guests. If you want to listen to real people who are winning in their own way and not as society told them to, then this podcast is for you. The Bold Enough Podcast is produced by Liuva Digital, hosted by Neha Gudu. Hi everyone, welcome to this new episode of the Bold Enough podcast and I am so excited to have my favorite author today, CG Charmaine English. Hi, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I am so happy and thrilled. I never thought that I would have you on my podcast one day. Before we start our conversation, let's just uh, let our listeners know you a bit more. So can you tell us um, who you are and what you do? Yes, my name is Charmaine. I write under my initials CJ English. I'm an author from the United States, specifically North Dakota in the cold portion of the United States. And I primarily write nonfiction about animal rights and plant-based eating. Um, I am dabbling in the world of fiction as well, but as of right now, I, 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 I write nonfiction. Yes. That is so nice. I remember, I think it was five years ago that I was on Google search and I was trying to find a book to read and then I stumbled on a fairy tale and I read the excerpt, I read everything and it was like, I had to read this book. And then I connected with you. Around the time you were doing a giveaway, I always remember that you were doing a giveaway about the book and then I reached out and uh, eventually yeah, I started reading the story and I couldn't put down that story. It was so real, authentic. I love that story. Yeah, and then we stayed in touch and now here we are. We're having a conversation. It's amazing. That is exactly how I remember it too. And, you know, A Fairy Tale was my first book that was um, released in 2015. And I know you wanted to chat a little bit about writing today, so we can certainly chat about that. But I, I, it was, I didn't know how writing was going to work for me. I knew I wanted to do it. I knew I was a writer. I had not went to school for it and such. And, you know, I poured my heart into it. And A Fairy Tale was the first book that came out, which offered me a tiny bit of success to use as sort of a, a launching pad for the books that followed. And I know you and I have stayed in touch ever since. Yes. And today, we'd like to talk about your latest story, Rescue Matters. It is a story with purpose, and that's the reason why I wanted to have a conversation about it. Tell me, why did you write Rescue Matters? What is it about? How did it start? Yes, Rescue Matters came about, and I've always said that I don't pick the project, the project picks me. And I feel like every time I try to write a book or whatever that topic might be, it doesn't happen. And something, I get get sidetracked or derailed and another project just sort of happens and comes out. When I was trying to write WTF Am I Supposed to Eat, it just wasn't working. And what came out instead was a fairy tale. And after a fairy tale, I went back and I was able to write WTF Am I Supposed to Eat within six months and within a year it was out. And it was the way that I wanted it. After that came out, 
I had a plan for a couple different books and none of them were really working. And I had become really entrenched in the world of animal rescue close to where I live. Um, I've eaten a plant-based diet for 20 years, raised all of my kids that way. I've been involved in animal rights and animal rescue in some way for 20 years, but I wasn't involved at the local level really close to where I lived. And around the time that I was trying to dabble in fiction, I really was becoming entrenched in the world of animal rescue pretty close to where I live. And it consumed my life. It consumed my time. And four years flies by. And all of a sudden, we've rescued 4,000 animals out of our, our state. And this whole world that I never knew existed, of tragedy and poverty and suffering and freezing in the cold and dying and rescue and redemption and and people working together, this whole world just opened up to me that I never knew existed. And I was just completely a part of it as well. And, you know, when you see anyone who loves animals, sees animal suffering and wants to help, it's just the nature of who we are for the majority of people, right? And yeah. I couldn't help but think, I didn't know this was a problem. And I live this close to it, that I think the problem is that people don't know it's a problem and they don't know how to help. And maybe by telling our story, we can raise awareness to the problem and we can help get to a quicker solution. And so that is how Rescue Matters came about. And it really is the story of how a small group of people, myself included, happened to run into each other and uh, stick together to help solve a problem of animal overpopulation in our area. And so that really is how it came about. 4,000 dogs, right? Yes. That is amazing. That is just wow. And uh, you're right. When we love animals, we can't see them in pain. And you're a vegan, right? Yes, yes. And you've been vegan for long? Yep, long time. So I stopped eating animals 20 some years ago now, and I've stuck to primarily vegan. Um, I have three, I have three kids now and we do travel quite a bit and I flexed a vegetarian as needed Uh, for a while. I didn't, but it was really frustrating. I wasn't happy with where I was at and it was causing more stress than it was sort of rewarding to do it. And so I flexed to vegetarian at times, but I always stay strict vegetarian. Here's what it comes down to for me. You know, when you have little kids and your little kids ask, mommy, when we go to that birthday party, can we eat the birthday cake? You have to decide. Am I the mom who's going to bring vegan cake and all the more power to those moms? Or am I going to say, yes, honey, of course we can have birthday cake at the birthday party today. And I wanted to be able to say, yes, of course we can have birthday cake. So we do really good on the side and everywhere that we can. But when eggs and dairy trickle in, because they trickle into everything, for sure here in the United States, it's just possible almost to avoid unless you're cooking every single thing yourself every moment of the day. We flex to vegetarian, yes. Okay, that's nice. And uh, so you became part of the community who was uh, part of the rescue and everything. So it was the Turtle Mountain Animal Rescue. If I got to try yeah. from the book. And there you met Kate. Yes. Kate? Kate or Kate? Yes, Keith. Yes, Keith. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's close by to where you live. 
how did you decide, you know, to actually go there to meet Kate? How did it happen? Because before you weren't a part of the community. So what happened? What triggered that you wanted to help the animals? You know, you wanted to be part of this movement. You wanted to, you know, have this purpose. Yes. So I worked as an administrator in a really big fitness and wellness center on one of our major universities here, Minnesota State University, Moorhead. And I had been there for a long time. When a fairy tale came out, I sort of had to, I had to make a decision. Am I going to pursue a career as a writer or am I going to stay in this massive job that I have that allows me no time to do any personal hobbies, no time to volunteer, no time to do anything in nonprofit And it took me four years to write a fairy tale working every night from eight o'clock until midnight just to get that one book out. And I knew that I had an opportunity to continue to write books and to have a life that existed, hopefully, with volunteering and nonprofit. And so I was able to resign from my career job, write books part time and do some consulting on the side. And when I freed up my life from that huge job that everyone wants that I was at the pinnacle of my career for. And I gave it all up because I was a slave to working at 7am and not getting home until six and all of those things. I finally had space in my life to volunteer. And my husband was like, well, go, you should go volunteer at that local shelter. That's, you know, 20 minutes away and you can walk dogs and help clean kennels and all that. And that's all fine, but it just never called to me. And so I didn't seek anything out. I just sort of sat back and waited and trusted that I would find the right thing at the right time. I had no idea what it was going to be, but I knew what it wasn't. I just knew that "Ah, I don't think that's probably, you know, best suited for me. I just want to go somewhere where my skills are, you know, best suited. And I, I ran into a friend that I hadn't seen in quite a while. And she was doing a transport. She was transporting some homeless puppies. And I was like, hey, you know, let me come with you sometime and just sort of see what you do and how you volunteer. And she called me a few weeks later and she was like, hey, I'm going up to, you know, going up to Belcourt, which is about four hours from where I live, where the population of homeless dogs and cats is a major problem. And she was like, I'm going to transport some animals. You want to ride along and see what it's all about? And I was like, sure. So she picks me up at four o'clock in the morning and we drive four hours to a place that I have not been since I was a child, even though it's only four hours from my door. You know how that goes. Somewhere that's four hours away is an eight hour round trip. How often do you do it? And we went up there and literally, you know, a couple hours later, we were driving back home and had 15 or so animals behind me in kennels that we had just picked up off of the ground literally in negative, you know, negative 20 degree weather. And in that half a day's time, we had rescued about 75 animals that otherwise would have died in the cold in the next coming couple of weeks. And when you're in that actual situation and, and realize that a small team of us have just picked up 75 animals that in the next 48 hours would have frozen to death on the ground. And there's no solution for them. There's no animal rescue. There's no shelter. There's no humane society. There's no ASPCA. There's no big groundswell of of people in a community or cities that band together to fix this problem. It's an area of extreme poverty where people are suffering and animals are suffering. There's no help for the animal. And when we drove away that day, 
I had to go to bed that night and process that this has been going on four hours from my door for decades and decades and decades. How many animals have died over that time? And if I just go to sleep right now and wake up like this never happened, this is going to keep going on for decades and decades and decades. And the guy on the ground that day that was organizing you know, the events was Keith and he had just started Turtle Mountain Animal Rescue. It was him and his wife at the time. It was just those two and a couple of other gals that had just sort of joined the organization that were working from afar. And they were trying to make something happen, but they were all at their wits end. They were ready to give up. They were ready to throw in the towel. It was just an impossible situation. And so I reached out to Keith after that day which a lot of people did and were like, Hey, whatever you need, I'm willing to help you. And that's what happens in animal rescue. Everyone's like, Hey, I'll help, you know, give me a call sometime. But that doesn't always come to fruition. And I reached out to him and I said, Hey, I'm the real deal. I'm not kidding. You know, like, what do you need? I, I, I can get on board with this. And I just knew that he and what he was doing and the massive problem and the stakes were so high that that was something and an area and a problem that needed me, that needed us, that needed people more than any other problem I had ever seen before. And so that is how I specifically got involved with Turtle Mountain Animal Rescue. Wow, that is amazing. And uh, you have two dogs, right? I do, yes. They are rescues. Yes, one of them is a rescue and one of them is sort of a half rescue. When I got her almost 11 years ago, the place I got her from raised or rescued other animals, other animals that most people don't care about, cows, pigs, that kind of thing. And they raised a litter of puppies every single year and basically auctioned them off to the highest bidder. And they used that money to fund their rescue, which saved animals that I care about and don't eat that the majority of people don't feel that way. And so that is sort of how I got her. And I'm happy that I did that and supported that place. I wouldn't do that again, knowing what I know now about being on the ground, you know, in other areas where there's an immediate suffering that could be relieved. Mm -hmm. My pets are rescues as well. I have a cat and a dog. And uh, so my dog, he's been here for 10 years now. And we got him when he was, he was just born so he hadn't even opened his eyes yet and uh, his mom was a stray dog and uh, his mom died and we found him you know on the road and my dad brought him home and he's the best thing that has happened to us so far and uh, my cat is one year old and so she her mom when her mom got her so people saw you know a lot of people don't like cats i don't know why so they they took her and she was still a kitten and they threw her away in the, the fields, in the sugarcane fields. And someone took her up and at that point, I think it's, a, I don't know, it's the universe thing. I was looking for a cat. I felt like it was time to adopt a cat. And I was looking for a cat who looked like my dog. I don't know. I just wanted one. And just like that, we got her. You know, it she magically just appeared in front of us. And they're both a rescues. And yeah, they, they are amazing. And ever since we were a me and my brother, we were kids, my parents, they always brought rescues home. 
so they were never uh, the the dogs and whenever you know uh, they were never going to buy a dog for us they were rescuing dogs and then we, they were bringing the dogs at home and we were raising them as pets so yeah i know i know it's it's just it's just that there are so many animals that needs rescue and a lot of people don't know about that you know there is this uh, tendency to get a breeder to buy dogs to buy a cat which has this characteristic this trait and everything and tend to forget that there are so many animals who are on the street hungry like you said if you did not you rescued uh, puppies who were going to be frozen if you didn't do that and there are so many uh, around us that we don't even know and sometimes people do know but they don't actually take an action to help so it is really nice and we have to upload that you went out of your way to help rescue so many dogs so many animals yeah this is really nice yeah i love your story and i don't know how old you are but i do think that it's your parents generation which is probably closer to my generation who are not buying dogs like my parents and my grandparents bought dogs. Like my grandparents always had purebred golden retrievers. Yeah. Now I love golden retrievers of nothing. They're wonderful. I have a part golden retriever and their golden retrievers. They all look the same. They named the first one Fonzie. They named the second one Fonzie. They named the third one Fonzie. They named the fourth one Fonzie. And they all had the same dog. It was just at varying degrees of its life. And that's the world that I grew up in. You bought a purebred dog because purebred dogs were the best dogs or, you know, the nicest or the most trainable, the least damaged. You know, you get a shelter dog. You don't know what you're going to get. It's been abused and it's going to come home and it's going to hurt your kids. There's all of these misconceptions that my parents, my grandparents had about shelter dogs that my generation does not have, that my kids have grown up with not eating animals, with rescuing animals, with volunteering, with, you know, working in nonprofit that I just never did. It just wasn't a thing. It's more prevalent now, which is great. I really feel like animal warriors have been beating the ground for 40 years and, and really promoting adopt, don't shop, you know, and that has reduced the amount of euthanasia, certainly around the world and certainly in American shelters. And that the progress, you know, has been there and, and is still there. And I am standing on the shoulders of tens of thousands of other animal advocates that have come before me over the last four decades, where they've already been doing the work. And in the United States, we have, this is a conservative number, about 1.5 million cats and dogs that get euthanized. These are healthy dogs that get euthanized every year just in shelters in the United States. Now, 10 years ago, that number was four times what it is now. And so it's so much better, but we're still not there yet. And specifically in the United States, there's about 35 million homes that own dogs, 35 million homes that own dogs. And we have 1.5 million healthy cats and dogs that are in shelters getting killed every single year. It's a tiny fraction of people. It's like one in six homes that own a dog now. 
if that family would just not buy a dog and adopt a dog instead when their dog that they have perishes, the shelters would be clear. And then what? Then we have all of these millions of homes still wanting healthy cats and dogs, and there would be no healthy cats and dogs in the shelters to use. And so there, at some point, has to be a place for perhaps bringing animals into the world in addition to not letting the ones that are here suffer. I am certain that in our lifetime that this problem is solvable and very, very much within our grasp. And if there are all of these homes left and there are no dogs, certainly there are dogs in Romania. Certainly there are dogs in Pakistan. Certainly there are dogs in Korea. And you know, importing and with our global network, you know, is that what has to happen to rescue animals from other countries? I know what some of the arguments against that are, but we're just talking about sentient life and animal suffering. Certainly we can work together and find solutions. Just like where I live in Fargo, North Dakota is a, is a pretty affluent, pretty wealthy city. And where we rescue animals out of is not. There's no animals to rescue in Fargo. There just isn't. There, you know, could it be possible that one day there's no animals to rescue in the United States? Well, then we need to look to areas of poverty that do need help. You know, my neighbor has a dog that got plucked off the streets from Mexico and is up here. Now that is, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away and it lives right next door. And so you know, it's a problem that's within our grasp. And I think it just takes education and awareness and people, you know, knowing and being around these animals that are not damaged, that literally were brought into a world that cannot sustain them. And uh, hopefully we can fix our way of thinking that a purebred animal and bringing one into the world is not the way to go while there still is so much suffering out there. Yeah, I was going to um, ask you about that. Do you think that there are more and more people coming in to uh, rescue uh, animals? Do you think that there need to be more awareness about this? And if yes, how can we bring more awareness? You know, how can we, like you said, our generation is different now and your kids, their generation are different now. They are more exposed to more information, more stuff that are going on my parents didn't know or their parents didn't know about those stuff it wasn't a normal thing it was you know it was not something that had to be thought about to talk about and bring awareness about it but now we are in a different stages where we know things that are happening but you still think that we need to bring more awareness about it and you wrote rescue matters i was supposed to to let people know about the story, how it happened, and how they can help too. So yeah, more awareness, do you think? Mm -hmm. I think it's happening. And I think like anything that awareness of certain issues probably happens in little tiny pockets that are separate from one another. For example, in the city that I live in Fargo, five years ago, there were not hundreds of dogs around me that were rescued from Turtle Mountain Animal Rescue. And now as I walk down the street in my neighborhood, as I drive through my neighborhood, I recognize dogs that people are walking that I know have come from our organization. 
And I can look back at our adoption records now and know that there's hundreds of adopted animals within a 15 mile radius of my home that never before ever in history of time has that happened. And when I go to work two days a week, I do consulting out of a wonderful business here in town. And over the last five years, six of my coworkers have adopted dogs from us and they spread the news to all of their family. And I was walking in a grocery store the other day and someone says, oh my God, that's a Turtle Mountain Animal Rescue shirt. I love them. Uh, my daughter has a dog from that place. And the other day, my daughter was walking with a Turtle Mountain hat on and someone stopped her and said, hey, I support those guys. And she was like, cool, my mom's the writer for that rescue and whatnot. And so it's not like we live in this little tiny town, but it's small enough where people know And now I have messages on my phone and emails every single week from people that I haven't seen in a really long time, or I'm just a slight acquaintance of that know that I am involved in the world of animal rescue. And they say, Hey, you know, do you guys have a little dog? My grandma, just this, or so-and-so's dog just passed away. Like, what do you have? Can you connect with those? Can you connect with them? And I always do. And the people that I connect with, I know are not people that they've never adopted a dog before. They've never rescued an animal before. They only know about the movement because of the groundswell that's been happening over the last, you know, 10 years or even 40 years it's taken to get us up to this point. So I really think that it's happening and it's going to happen in small pockets throughout the world that eventually hopefully become a larger social sort of movement that we no longer breed and buy until the shelter problem is fixed. And the shelter system, the way that it's set up is really designed like, well, you know, sort of, and this is, I suppose, maybe not lovely, but the way that I see it, it's sort of like the slaughterhouse system. It's all behind closed doors. So unless you are the person that works in the shelter that sees the mess that these animals are in when they come in, unless you're the person that volunteers in the shelter that walks through the kennels and goes, we're going to get 150 dogs in today. We only have a hundred kennels, which 50 are dying today. And you walk through and you look and you decide which ones look adoptable and which ones look unadoptable. And the ones that look unadoptable get the red X. And at the end of the day, a volunteer has to go and take those dogs and, and, and humanely euthanize them. And so all of the people that are buying dogs, essentially what I think that that we've been in that we've been hoodwinked about is that when you purchase an animal, you're kicking the can to the shelter worker who has to draw the red X, who has to clip the lead on the dog at the end of the day and march 50 of them to their death. And we've put that behind closed walls where no one can see. We've put that in a slaughterhouse with no windows. And it was, you know, Paul McCartney, I think that said slaughterhouses had glass walls, we would all be vegetarians. And I think that that is definitely true, right? maybe not a hundred percent true, but certainly most of us would stop and go, wait a second. Is this, I really want to, at the end of the day, be the person who contributes to this system. And uh, 
But that is what we do. We hide things because it hurts. So until people actually bear witness, until they know what has to happen behind closed doors, um, you know, I think if that if those walls came down and people knew I'm kicking the can to this person, what if what if every time you had to buy a dog, you also got seven other shelter dogs here? Here you go. Here's your purchased puppy. And then here's a leash. Here's seven leashes. You have to take these two. And if you don't want them, then you have to euthanize them yourself, because otherwise you're kicking the can to someone like me who is really compassionate and has a heart for animals and that has to do the dirty work for, for, you know, people that don't understand. Yeah, that is so true. Yeah, it is happening. And if I go to the context of slaughterhouse, for example, I can take my own uh, experience. I did not know about slaughterhouse because no one told me about it. There was not zero awareness since I was a kid. I did not know that what I was eating, if I was eating a chicken or um, other other animals, I did not even know how they came on my plate. You know, it was like, and I don't blame my parents or anything because they also did not know about that, that they had to dig in what you're putting in, in your body. It's like this because no one is talking about it. Everything, everyone thinks it's normal. It's a normal way of life. And as a kid, as a teenager, you think it's a normal way of life. Okay, it's fine. Like you don't even try to find answers to those. But eventually when I met during my path, I started, uh, I met people who were bringing those awareness, you know, where they were digging deep into the answers and then it was on my own. I tried to see, okay, I am eating this animal. Uh, how how did, did it become like this? How did it, why is it tasting good? Is it actually tasting good or are they putting all the stuff? And then I started reading a lot of stuff watching videos and then yeah you know it click you start to realizing things you start learning things and then you you start to think on your own do i like you said do i want to be part of this do i want because i don't think people who work at the slaughterhouse they are very happy to do what they have to do you know it's it's because the society is like that it's the cycle it's their job and everything and uh, when we are just not asking for answers and believing what we are seeing, are we really helping them also, you know? Yes, I think uh, it is happening. So there, there are people, there is awareness who are being raised, even with the rescues, even with animal suffering and everything. There are a lot of people who are trying to break the cycle, if I can say, break the barriers, you know? And uh, I think we need uh, more awareness about that and uh, teaching, maybe not teaching. I don't know how, what's the proper word, but if I have a kid, I will let her or him know how food is being made, you know, how they are doing it. And very surprising, um, I know we are getting a bit off topic, but it's getting into uh, very surprising. I never thought about that. The chicken that I was eating, I always, um, I never thought like how, you know, we always think about the taste, you know, it's really tasting good. And that is all that matter that block all our other senses when we are eating something. And uh, when I actually went on and read about how really they, when you have a chicken who is, is dead or something or a dead animal, they don't taste 
like your when you're eating it on your plate there is a lot of stuff which are added there a lot of chemicals a lot of colors flavors artificial stuff that is added onto your meal so that it looks like this and it tastes like this so yeah in a way it's what are you putting in your body and those are the things that i did not know but when you dig deeper and then you start to know just like rescue just like what happens in shelters behind the closed doors even if in Mauritius uh, it's the same thing you know there is not enough visibility on what is happening in shelters or how many dogs how many cats are being euthanized what is happening to the stray dogs the stray cats or anything people don't talk about it um, and one of the reasons I started the podcast also is to talk about those things like we should they should know we should bring the awareness yeah, you know, the hard part about awareness is it's sort of like what happened in my Facebook feed for a while. I was, every time I opened up Facebook, it was one article after another that was these horrible stories of animal atrocities that were happening around the world. And then when you become known as an animal rescue person, every other person that knows you and have anything to do with animal rescue they will send you every one of the most horrible articles on the animal atrocities that happen around the world, just to share that information with you as if you didn't know, or maybe because they think that you can help in that situation in Turkey, when you're in North Dakota in Fargo, somehow, maybe I could help that dog. You know what I mean? And I realized everything that I'm clicking on because I'm interested in what's happening around the world, but it's all so dark and so painful. These are stories that no one wants to hear. No one wants to read about it. No one wants to see it. If you repost it on your timeline, no one likes it. No one, people scroll past as fast as they possibly can because they don't want to hear about the Chinese dog eating festival, nor do I want to hear about it or think about it either. And so how do you bring awareness to these issues that no one, not even yourself, wants to hear about or read about. It's really difficult. When it comes to animal rescue in terms of domesticated dogs and cats, one of the things that we've done that I think we've done really well to overcome that is that we as a rescue adopted a sort of different promotion model than a lot of the other rescues. For example, the ASPCA. Here in the United States, I don't know what it's like in Mauritius, but it's sad, horrible, you know, situations that we see on television coupled with really sad Sarah McLaughlin music. And it's a person holding an injured, stray, shaking dog, and it just looks like the absolute world is coming down. And every time you hear that song, anyone in the United States will tell you this, they flip the channel immediately. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. No one's going to donate their $35 a month. Every time they see that commercial, they flip the channel because it just makes you feel so awful. And maybe it makes you feel guilty enough because guilt is powerful enough to get us to do things, right? So I'm sure that you know people do donate because they feel guilty, but they don't want to see it. And the people that donate oftentimes are still buying designer dogs and then donating $30 a month to save you know the other ones because they just don't want to see it. We decided, let's be really careful about 
how what we're putting out into the world makes people feel. If it makes you feel really awful, you're going to turn the channel. But let's let's show people the really happy side of rescue, which is, hey, let's not focus on these horrible situations about where they've come from, how they would have died, the terrible dirt bags that left them in the field. How can people do this? Let's pick them up and show what their life is like moving forward. Meaning we've all gotten together. We've all decided that we're going to save these animals and and try to put a solution in place for long-term permanent solution. And we're able to move these dogs in cats into homes and they have like these great, fantastic forever lives. Let's show that side of it so that people want to be involved in the rescue in the future not the drama of the pain of the cruelty in the world. And that has really worked for us. That has really, really worked for us. And it's not that we don't show those things. We do. But if all it is, is showing animals being picked up out of the dump, animals being picked up out of the ditch, some dirt bag threw out the car window, and you focus on the horrible side of of rescue, no one wants to see it. No one wants to hear about it. And so focusing on all the good that we're doing and all the good that comes from being a rescue and picking these animals up and going forward, that has really worked, meaning that people stick around, they follow, they like, they help, they donate, they adopt, they share, they get involved, they tell their friends because they're not telling their friends about this awful Chinese dog eating festival. They're telling their friends about this great organization that takes in all of these puppies that I can't wait to adopt one from. And so I hope other rescues continue to adopt that model of not being the doom and gloom because if it works, it works. And it seems to work to bring people in and bring people together a lot more than does telling the drama of it all. Yes, that is so true, actually. Because I also can't uh, see those videos or when they show you how, how the, for example, how the dairy industry is, you know, it's like now I know, but I can't see it. So I will scroll past it. Like you said, it's, I think it's a human behavior. You can't really try to feel that because it's guilt it's feeling awful or it's emotional and you don't want to see it so you'd like to go and see a meme which is going to make you laugh Uh, so i like the approach that you adopted seeing uh showing how the puppies the dogs are will be living their best life ever if uh, you know someone would adopt them someone would give them a home and unconditional love yeah and i hope that the people who are listening to us who are part of rescue or shelter or anything they can adopt this approach that could change things, you know? I was having lunch with a group of friends, group of girls one time, fairly recently. And a person at the table asked one of the other gals, not me, she said, you're a vegetarian, right? And and the lady said, yeah, I've been a vegetarian for quite a while. And then the question was, well, why did you do it? She was asking the other gal and the gal said, well, I didn't do it for animal reasons. I did it for health reasons. And I realized in that moment that this is a person who's a strong, confident, bold woman who's made this choice to not eat animals a very long time ago. 
But when asked the question, why don't you eat animals? The answer was not, and was specifically, oh, I don't do it for animal reasons. I do it for health reasons. And it made very clear to me that even someone who's very confident in their skin, who they are, and someone who's admirable and respected in the community has to put out the disclaimer, I don't do it for animal reasons. Because if you say I do it to save the animals, you've lumped yourself in with this weird fringe group who has decided to not eat animals when the rest of the other 99% of the world eats animals like it's commonplace and doesn't even think about it. And so if that doesn't highlight how you know, entrenched it is in our society that eating animals in the way that we do, using animals in the way that we do, breeding them the way that we do, buying them, not rescuing them, not helping them, um, not thinking about how they are raised or slaughtered or what's on our plate. It's so entrenched and so commonplace that to think outside of that philosophy, you end up being the weird one. And that even some people who do it try to separate themselves out from being the weird ones, even if they don't, you know, eat animals. I, I has not eaten animals in two decades. And I've encountered so many of those situations where I'm the odd person out who gets intensely questioned for my bizarre eating behavior of eating plants and not animals. You know, it, it's different now. It's not great. It's different how when I was growing up and here's what I think that we can train our kids to do is what I wasn't trained to do. And this is no fault of my parents, just like you. I'm like, my parents are here. They only knew what they knew. And, you know, it, it was it wasn't when you question something on your plate, your mom and dad didn't talk to you about why it was there or what it was. Unless it was vegetables, they would give you a lecture on why it was healthy and why you need to eat them. It was eat your chicken. You need your protein. Just finish your plate. You, you know, you need your protein. And there was no conversation about, you know, where it was, how it was slaughtered, where it came from. You know, chicken nuggets weren't chicken. They were just chicken nuggets. They weren't animals. And it wasn't discussed. And kids were taught, as I was taught, to not question it. Don't question authority. Just finish your plate. Shut your mouth and finish your plate is the message that we heard as kids was shut your mouth and finish your plate. Don't ask questions about where your food came from. And so we really beat it into our kids to not ask questions. And in school, my kids were never really taught to think critically. They've learned those skills at home when I have encouraged them to question everything. That doesn't mean be unruly or be a hoodlum or go against authority. It just means to question things. And it's okay to question things. Chicken nuggets. What is a chicken nugget? Where did it come from? You know, and furthermore, one of the things that you spoke to that I have also experienced is that when you go into a grocery store and you walk through the meat department, everything is so far removed from what an animal looks like. And the packaging even leads us to believe that this is some lovely cow who was hand fed and petted nicely and slaughtered humanely by old McDonald and farmer Brown. And we don't look at that steak and think cow, you know, we don't, we even don't name it dead cow burger. We call it hamburger. We don't call it pig. We call it pork, you know, or pork chops or, or whatnot. And all the names that we use to hide 
this dirty, you know, industry of, of slaughtering 9 billion land animals a year in the United States alone for human consumption. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can relate to the questions. I recently stopped eating animals and it was, you know, when uh, I went to, I don't know, family gatherings and all of a sudden you're not eating meat. I had so many questions. Why? Where will you get your proteins? Why are you doing that? It is so good. It is. And at some point, it's not to feel weird, but it gets exhausting to explain yourself why you took this decision. And each time it's the same questions, actually, from different people, but the same questions. And even if it's like, uh, you know, it's become so exhausting. And then you're just like, okay, anyone is going to ask me again, I'm going to say it was for my health or something like that, just so that you don't get, uh, you don't have to keep on explaining. And then you have to explain the whole story. And then people don't want to listen to that story. They don't want to see, they don't want to hear the story. And we can't force anyone also to see that story you know because they are not ready or they don't want to see it's it's their path and i respect everyone uh, if they've chosen to eat meat if they're not chosen to eat meat it's their it's their life but you know yeah it's the question it's the how people view yourself also you know they view yourself uh, differently because you're not part of the same so the same gang now you eat differently you 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 view things differently and that always and i remember my relatives started asking my parents what happened is this a health issue is this something uh what is happening why is she not i was someone when i was a kid i used to eat chicken almost every day you know i, I love that i well i was a kid i love the taste i love everything i love kfc i love mcdonald's and to just you know uh, my aunt or my uncle to just see me drastically uh no i can't eat that you know i, I prefer to eat something else uh and everything uh yeah it's, it's the, the questions so i can actually relate what it's like to have all those questions and at some point you just don't want to reply to them you just want to ignore them even now if uh, someone is going to ask i'll just ignore that questions and move on to something else because not everyone is going to understand and not everyone is at the level to want to understand that you know some people just want to carry on with their lives like everything is fine uh, it's the same way of life they want to carry on all the time they don't want to to they won't they won't want to go beyond they can say it like that and it's their stories their life we can't really pressure people to you know to stop eating animals or anything no one pressured me to stop eating uh, animals it just happened you know one day i i started asking all those questions what is that why am i eating it do we really get proteins from chicken do we really get calcium from milk you know, and then starting to dig into the answers and then realizing how advertisement and everything has uh, fed us so much of stories that we went deep into that, like a spider web. But I'm also happy that those things are changing now. I see more and more people asking questions. I see more people trying to change the way they live, despite they are the minority here. It's difficult, actually, you know, to be only 
to be like a minority in in those in this aspect you know in the food aspect where you are at a restaurant and you're the only one who's not going to eat um the meat today tonight yeah it's it's take courage and then to stick it up because a lot of people ask me don't you miss the taste like they are next to me and they are like taste it you will realize that you made a mistake and it takes right. and then it yeah and it takes you know your belief and uh, the commitment you made to say no and i think it's also when you realize you actually know how uh, food is being done so that it comes onto your plate you don't actually miss the taste or anything because you know it's all it was all uh, a lie if i can say yeah. And then uh, when you also realize that your vegetables, your fruits, they can be prepared and cooked in such a way that they taste so good than the meat that you were eating. That if people, um, I don't know, it's maybe the society or the way advertisement is tells you that uh, vegetables doesn't taste that good. And it's the meat and, you know, the fish that's going to, This is the best, best plate. Like even if you go to a restaurant and you're going to ask uh, what's the best thing on the menu today, it's always, it's not, it's not the vegetable. It's the meat, you know, it's the plat du jour, it's beef, it's deer, it's everything. No one is going to tell you that, okay, we have this, this uh, vegan plate or this uh, vegetarian plate that is so good that you have to taste it. No one says that. It's right, right? It is right. You know, when a waiter or a waitress to, uh, comes up to our table and says, would you like to hear the specials? I always say, no, <laughs> I'm not mean about it. No. And what I usually say is, are there any vegetarian specials? And they'll just be like, uh, no, nope. <laughs> I don't need to hear them. <laughs> you're right. You're exactly right. You know, there's a funny meme out there that has you know, a picture of a grocery store and it's like zombie apocalypse and everyone is running through the grocery store and the aisles are completely empty and everyone is chaotic and they're going to starve to death and they're, you know, hoarding and they're going to do their prepping and all that. And then there's, you know, one woman standing in front of the section that says plant-based foods and the shelves are just completely full and she's just, you know, stocking her cart. I'm like that, you know, That is the way that it still is, but, but it is changing. You know, the second book that I released was called WTF Am I Supposed to Eat? And that is all about these issues that we're talking about. And uh, I have worked with thousands of people and in the many, many people that have moved from being a meat eater to moving into a more plant-based diet and all the struggles that go along with that, I've been able to be along on a lot of those journeys. And all of the things that you just described in your world happen to everyone who decides to not eat meat anymore. You become really the weirdo and you're offending people's way of life just by being who you are and not eating meat. It's offensive to other people as if it should be, it shouldn't be, but it is because in not eating meat or dairy or eggs or whatnot, and just saying, no, I'm okay. I'm just going to eat with plants. People will look and go, well, what's wrong with the way that I am eating then? You know, are you, you, are you sort of too good? Are you too uppity? 
or whatnot to not eat meat anymore. Come on. I think you've forgotten the way that it tastes. It's really good. You should try it because if you do try it and you like it and you start eating it again, they don't have to think and wonder about what they're doing in their life that they might have to change. If we all just go with the status quo and the normal, we can all just keep eating meat because it tastes good and we all really like it. And it's really easy. And we just have, then we can close the blinders on the, on the industry. But if someone comes in and disrupts and says, no, I don't think I'm going to contribute to that anymore. Then everyone else who is still contributing to it has to either fight against that person and ridicule them or try to put them down or try to get them to come back over. Otherwise they have to examine and think and feel maybe, you know, she's doing it and I respect her and I like her. This is, you know, our daughter, our granddaughter, our niece or whatever it is, or friend, Uh, maybe I have to change and maybe I have to change is really hard. And I've always said it like this is that here's the reality. Meat eaters have it really easy. It is really, really easy to throw a slab of meat on a grill with some steamed vegetables and stick it on a plate 20 minutes later. We all grew up like that. That's how I grew up. It was really, really easy. Not one time until I decided on my own in my 20s to not eat meat, did I even realize that you could make a full meal that did not have meat at the center. And when I stopped eating meat, my idea because I didn't know anyone who was a vegetarian. I didn't know anyone who was a vegan. I had the, like that person existed somewhere in California. I think maybe I'll run into one someday. That was my idea of where a vegetarian or vegan was. I didn't know anyone who'd done it or was even interested in it. And so all I thought was if I don't eat meat, like all I'm going to have is some lettuce and raw carrots. Like I was, I mean, like that's going to be it for me. And I guess that's what I'm going to do. Cause I just, I'm going to do it. I had no idea how to make a meal that was only plants. I had no idea that we're not taught that we're taught how to make meat and we're taught how to make steamed vegetables and potatoes. And that's it. We're not how we're not taught how to make pesto zucchini noodles with pine nuts and shredded carrots and cherry tomatoes. We're not taught how to make, you know, vegetarian lasagna with spinach and tofu. Last night I made sweet sour tofu with peppers and onions and rice and, you know, marinade. And I I even did fried tofu because I, you know, sometimes you like the taste of fried tofu. And, um, you know, we, we make lentil tacos and black bean chili and all of these foods that I had no idea that existed in those combinations that are fantastic. And if anyone came and lived in my house for a week, you would never leave and go, I miss the meat. And everyone who hears that, who's a meat eater is going to say, oh, that's not going to be me. Oh, oh God, she's off or no way. I would always miss the meat. I could never do that. But if I had a dime for every time someone said to me, oh, I could never give up meat. And then when those people do, they're just like, oh my God, I thought I could never give it up. I thought I would miss it. I I just don't. Because those are the people that learn how to cook with plants. But if you don't learn how to cook with plants and your idea of eating a non-animal diet is lettuce and carrots, you'll miss the meat, you know? True. Let's take a small break. 
and then we we come back and continue it's been a long but amazing conversation so we are going to take a little break and then we'll come back right after so stay tuned everyone hi this is neha and you're listening to the bold enough podcast Okay, everyone. So we're back and uh, CJ is still with us. CJ, how are you feeling about our conversation so far? I love talking about animals, animal advocacy and not eating animals for so many reasons. I've just been entrenched in this life. So thank you so much for having me. I love this conversation. Me too. And let's get the, a bit back to Rescue Matters, the book. How long did it take for you to write the story? So I wrote that on out of sheer desperation, quite honestly. I was desperate to get our story out, to get help, to raise awareness, because every day it felt like we weren't going to be an organization tomorrow. And we didn't have enough help and we didn't have enough money. And the problem was too massive for us to solve. And I just, in my mind, had the thought that maybe, just maybe, If I can tell our story in a way that reaches people that just maybe will have enough help to keep going. And when you have that in mind, you have to condense it and go, how fast can I get this out? And so from the time I started writing to the time it came out was about 18 months. And that is a grind for me. I'm not a fast writer. I'm a, t a very slow, meticulous tinkerer. And I would give anything to get that book back and for someone to say, you got 12 months and you can just tinker away on it and get it all the way that you want it and then re-release it because there are so many things that I, I would change about it if I could have it back. But I, I felt like I needed to get it out and not sit on it like I would have any other sort of project. And uh, what uh, have been people's reactions when they read the story? What did they... How was their reaction? What did they say to you? You know, as an author, when you release a book, you expect there to be criticism, right? And and I expected criticism in a lot more ways than I've ever gotten. And the minor criticisms that have come are things like, you know, formatting errors or grammatical errors that aren't even grammatical errors that are more like stylistic choices that I chose to write in a very conversational style and use not formal writing, you know, techniques and grammar, because that's not the kind of story it is, that there has not been criticisms about the story. It's about things that just quite honestly don't matter. And so overwhelmingly, the feedback has been incredibly positive. Um, Amazon reviews are incredibly positive and is so fantastic. I mean, you never know how a book is going to be received. You, you just never know. And to have it received as well as it has, has been really a great honor and nothing makes me happier than to get that story out and to share it with as many people as who want to read it. Yeah. And I recommend everyone who are listening to us today to try the book, read the story, and then tell us what you think on Amazon. And CJ, if you had to nominate people who helped, encouraged you, and inspired you to write the story, to whom would you give that credit? 
for that story, uh, would have to be first and foremost, foremost Keith, because he was the first guy on the ground and his wife at the time who is him and his first wife are no longer together. But those two were rescuing dozens of animals out of their home every single month. And they had been doing it not for a long time, but for long enough to be burnt out and to want to throw in the towel. And they never did. And the two other gals that are still with the rescue today, Aaliyah and Trista, were on the ground helping Keith and his wife when I sort of came on the scene. And they are still with it today. And is that little group of people who we all decided we were just not going to give up. And they decided they were not going to give up either. And I could get on board with that. And so, it, you know, they inspired me to keep going and not give up. And we all picked each other up when someone fell down and you pick them up and then you would fall down and then they would pick you up and so on and so forth. And that's just sort of how it was in the beginning and, and how it still is today. And uh, are you planning to write uh, another story soon? I am. And I've been working on it for a while. But, you know, after you, when I wrote Rescue Matters, it was a complete story. It was everything that I had. It was everything. I left nothing, I left nothing back. And that story has been told. How do you tell that story again? I, I, there's no, I can't tell it again in the way that it was. I can only tell a different story. And I don't want to tell a different story and have the ending of that story be the same as Rescue Matters, which is we've done a great job. We've rescued a lot of dogs. We've made a huge difference, but we still don't have a permanent solution in place. And so I want the ending of a second book to be, we did it. And we did it in terms of we have put everything that we know to do in place to solve this problem so that if all of us perish tomorrow, the legacy of Turtle Mountain Animal Rescue will live on for generations so that millions of dogs and cats do not have to die in the cold here over the decades to come. That to me is a success. And I sort of am not writing the book to the finish because I want to finish the job. I want us to finish the job. And I feel like I'm sort of even holding it over my own head. You can't write that book until you finish the job. You can't finish that book until you finish the job. I don't want to write it. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, we never really did it. We all sort of, you know, just got burnt out and gave up. No, we're all going to see this through all the way to the end and put a permanent solution in place. No matter how many millions of dollars and sweat hours and blood it takes, we've come too far to turn back. When I feel like that is done, that a long-term, you know, ship is in motion to keep going, I will finish that book. And I'm sure we'll all succeed in that. I'm sure you'll have your happy ending in the book. And we'll wait for that. Yes. I and I, I do. None of us are giving up anytime soon. So we'll keep giving it our all. Okay. So... We've come nearly to the end of our episode. Is there something else you'd like to share about the story of Rescue Matters? Or maybe, I'm just thinking, what advice would you give to anyone who, in their country, in their locality, they want to be part of, of a community where they can help, they can rescue uh, dogs, cats, maybe where they live, they don't have Uh, you know, a community who is helping out. Maybe they want to start something, but 
they don't know where to start or uh, they are afraid people won't support them in this uh, journey? What advice would you give to them? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, you know, go wherever it is that your heart is pulling you and use whatever talents or resources you have. And you don't have to have the permission or money or anything from anyone else. For example, you know, we always say the biggest thing anyone can do for us is to donate. Not everyone can donate. Not everyone has the funds to donate. If you can't donate, foster. Not everyone is in our area. If you can't foster, adopt. Not everyone is in our area. If you can't adopt, adopt from your local area. If you can't adopt from your local area or foster or donate, but you can volunteer, right? And you can volunteer in whatever way you can volunteer. If you don't have a car, if you don't have gas, if you don't have money, you can't physically drive to a shelter, you don't have to. You can reach out to that shelter and say, how can I help you from afar? Here are where my skills are. I am passionate about what you do, and I would like to help promote your cause. Can I help with your social media campaign? Can I, I'm a graphic designer. Can I help design something for you? Can I volunteer to come and take photographs of your animals and help them get adopted? Can I volunteer to write descriptions for the animals that you've taken in to help get them adopted? Can I vet adoption applications for anything? Just, I think pairing up what your own individual skills are with where your passion is and figuring out how you can help that place. And don't wait for them to ask you. Tell them, here's how I think I can help you. You know, would you be interested in that kind of help? This is what I'm good at. So maybe get involved in whatever way works for the person. Yes, those are great advice. We can, sometimes we try to, uh, we think of the big, big things that we can do to help, but sometimes it's just the small steps. Like you said, a small thing can make a difference. And maybe at your local shelter or anything, They need those small things that people aren't doing. So yeah, take those advice, just call and ask. Maybe just calling and ask can help instead of just thinking and thinking what I can do, you know, just asking those people who are already doing it. And there's always room for more help, more volunteers. And the more we uh, we go into that, the more we'll, we can make a difference and we can change something. Yes, I think if you really want to volunteer, you'll volunteer, right? And uh, calling and asking and, and having someone at a shelter say, I'm sorry, we don't take volunteers right now. If you hang up the phone and go, I guess they don't need me, I can't volunteer. Uh, you probably didn't really want to volunteer in the first place. If you really want to volunteer, you'll figure out a way in into one place or another, or at minimum, you go, what can I do as a person, you know, to promote the causes that I believe in, even if it's just the way that you eat or the way that you consume or what you don't consume, how you buy, you know, like we stopped going to the circus years and years and years ago, <laughs> you know, just as a consumer, we don't purchase things that we don't want to support, you know. Exactly. Uh, we stopped going to the zoo and It's just a, it could be just a small thing like that, just that, uh, okay, we're not going to the zoo anymore, we're going to do other stuff. And yeah, it's a small thing when you say, uh, okay, I'm not going to the zoo or the circus, but this can make difference. Like imagine if a lot of people say no, what's going to happen, you know? Yes, yeah, so small mm -hmm. 
things make big difference sometimes. So thank you for being here today as a guest on the podcast. Shomain, it was very nice having you, uh, having this conversation. It's an uncomfortable conversation to have and for people to hear as well, I'm sure. But I love that we are bringing those those topics, those conversations out there, no matter how difficult it can be to talk about it or for others to hear about it. It's important to bring them out. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to talk about these things. Thank you. Thanks, everyone who's been there to listen. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you love the episode, do share and tag me. Uh, I'm going to tag CG also on the episode when we're going to publish it on our Instagram account. So don't forget to share your love on it. And don't forget to go on Amazon and try to see what Rescue Matters is about. Maybe you love the story like us. And thank you all for listening today. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Bold Enough podcast hosted by Neha Ganyu. If you like what you heard today, please follow us and join in weekly as we keep on breaking the barriers together. Don't forget to show your love on our Instagram account and linking page. See you!